Good evening and welcome to Cabin 13, a true crime podcast. This isn't like any summer camp you've ever been to. Here in Cabin 13, we discuss murders, mayhem, mysteries, and the occasional mosquito bites. I'm Devin, and I'm joined by my co-host and cabin co-counselor, Julie. What's up, campers? Welcome to Cabin 13. We're happy to have you with us in the cabin. Tonight's case begins in the City of Angels. Lights out, flashlights up, it's time to start our story. January 15th, 1947. It was a crisp, clear Wednesday morning in Los Angeles, California. A young mother named Betty Bersinger had packed her three-year-old daughter, Anne, into her stroller. The two were headed to a nearby repair shop where Betty was planned to pick up her husband's shoes. Betty and her husband, John, had moved to their Lamert Park home in 1945. Census records of the time indicate theirs was a middle-class neighborhood made up of dentists, salesmen, and others of the professional class. Real estate development had stalled both during and after World War II, so while parts of this neighborhood were occupied, still more housing lots stood unfinished and vacant. It was beside one of these lots that Betty noticed something strange. She had been navigating the stroller around broken glass on the sidewalk, when her eyes fell upon what looked like a store mannequin lying on the grass ahead. Only when she drew closer did she realize flies were hovering over it, and that this was no mannequin. She was looking at the mutilated dead body of a woman. The victim had been cut in half at the waist. Her arms and legs were carefully posed. Most disturbing of all, her mouth had been slashed ear to ear to form a gruesome Glasgow smile. The victim who would later become known as the Black Dahlia, was Elizabeth Short. Flies and a store mannequin. We're not the first to say so, but usually in the true crime community, the saying is it's it's never a mannequin. <laughs> yeah, it's never a mannequin. Every, every time you think it's a mannequin, it's not a mannequin. Never. And this is, oh man, just the, the description and the fact that this woman found her with her young child, you know, just it, the neighborhood. It, it, I'm sure Betty was probably thinking, of course it's a mannequin. Nothing like this happens around here. Yeah, and I mean, three years old, they're not exactly like sedate, like they're looking around, they're Mm -hmm. taking in things around them. I mean, what, how did the child react? I I haven't been able to find that, but I I can only imagine just because the way she reacted, Mm -hmm. probably not good. Right. Uh, But yeah, um, there's so many notorious crimes in California, but... In my opinion, this one stands alone. Just the brutality of what Elizabeth Short endured and the the media circus that followed, it just, there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been since, I would say. Right. There's just something so specific about 
her injuries, the way she was posed, you know, anyone who is in the true crime, true crime community knows this case. They know the details of this case and the way that she was found. And it's just top of the list gruesome. Yeah. And it kind of became part of the fabric of Hollywood and the noir genre. Like, she's a, a newcomer in town, and it's, you know, bright lights, big city, except, you know, city of angels, except there's a devil running around. Like, it kind of just took off and never stopped. Like, I think only in the past 20-ish years that it actually started to come back to the actual victim at the center, which is Elizabeth Short. Mm-hmm. Um, for a very long time, it was just the Black Dahlia this, Black Dahlia that, and it wasn't really anything about her. It was more just the all about the, the murder as opposed to the actual person. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. Let's pick up where we left off with Betty Bersinger. Uh, so first of all, I, I can't imagine what she was feeling. This is essentially, as a runner, like my worst fear. Um, yeah. Finding Every time something. I even see, you know, if I'm on a walk and I even see a branch that is, you know, limb-like, I still freak out. There is yeah. not an ounce of me would ever think that it's a mannequin. I always think it's a dead body. No, it's it's a piece of wood. <laughs> Unfortunately for Betty Bersinger, that's not what it was. Nope. Um, So she, first thing she does is she runs across the streets. She knocks on a couple doors trying to get the police, get somebody there to help. Uh, She's actually turned away a couple times because she's so, so shooken up. I mean, understandably. Mm -hmm. Um, But the call does go through to University Station a few minutes before 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, And she actually hung up before she gave her name. She had to come forward later, but Mm -hmm. she just wanted somebody there so she didn't have to take care of it anymore, and I cannot blame her. Um, So dispatch alerted patrolmen over their radios to a 390W and 415 down, code 2. And we can break down this information into a few parts. You know me with my uh, police dispatch reports. I do Mm -hmm. like them. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, 390W means a drunk woman. 415 means a disturbance, like disturbing the peace or public drunkenness. And code 2 means to proceed without lights or siren. Whereas if you had a code 2 high, that means lights, sirens, go, 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 go. So right away, dispatch and the patrolman, they did not know what they were expecting. Mm -hmm. There's misinformation going on and in for a rude awakening when they actually get there. Yeah. So the responding officers are Frank Perkins and Will Fitzgerald, and they are first on the scene at 11.07 a.m. There was a reporter named Will Fowler. He worked for the Los Angeles Examiner, and for years he said he was the first on the scene which obviously was later proven to be untrue. Um, And he actually wrote a book about um, his life as a newspaperman. Um, But he wrote this little gem about the crime scene that I thought I'd read to you. Here were two hunks of flesh laid down like sides of beef, 
two, two pieces of perhaps what could have been a good-looking young woman. So he's obviously referring to the bisection, but I'm just giving you a little taste of the responding people to this crime. Wow. I mean, I could think of some other words to use to describe the scene. I don't think hunks of beef. Is that what he said? Hunks of beef? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know that that would be my choice. <laughs> well, you're not a man in 1947, so thank God. <laughs> um so half an hour later, the news is spreading through the LAPD and it's spreading through the newspaper staff. And the LAPD and the newspapers, they had a kind of like symbiotic relationship at the time. Reporters, they, so they also had um, police radios in the car. So they would kind of be a race of who's going to get there first. You know, I'll tell you this if you tell me that. Like there was kind of a lot of trading going on. Um, so this day was no different. Um, I mentioned Will Fowler already, but I would be remiss if I, if I didn't talk about Aggie Underwood. And Aggie is recognized as one of the first women in the United States to be named city editor of a metropolitan newspaper. You go. And she had, like, a formidable reputation. <laughs> There's this, there was this article I found while looking her up uh, from LA Weekly, and it said... Tough as nails Aggie, with her disheveled appearance and a voice that would seduce only a foghorn, <laughs> kept a regular-sized baseball bat on her desk to keep order. She also had a starter pistol tucked into a drawer, which she would shoot into the newsroom when it got too quiet. What? Yeah. And uh, she got a new bat that was as tall as she was, and it said, To Aggie, keep swinging. Oh, my God. That's one way to keep your employees awake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would um, not recommend. <laughs> no, no, no. So she was around. She There was uh, a few other murders, like, significant at the time that she she was always on, on the sidelines reporting. You know, she wanted to be in there in the thick of it with the men. Um, and actually, so the men, all of them, police and reporters, they thought the victim was uh, a woman in her 30s and Aggie was um, a mother and uh, you know she just had a better understanding she was like no 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 we're t we're looking at someone in their 20s maybe late teens mm -hmm. and she was right when Elizabeth who was 22 eventually was identified um, when discussing the case several years later, she said that this crime showed sadism at its most frenzied, mm -hmm. and it was the worst butcher murder she had ever been assigned. Mm -hmm. um, so right away, they start collecting evidence at the crime scene. So they, they noticed a heel print, a spot of blood, and tire marks near the body. They also found a cement sack containing watery blood that was kind of in the general vicinity. And they start canvassing the neighborhood. So they're looking for witnesses. They're trying to get specific times. You know, did you see this? Did you see that? So there were two reports that stuck out. Um, there was 
someone said they saw a Chevrolet coupe in the area that morning, but there was also someone else who was like, no, 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 it was a dark Ford sedan, and it stopped right around where that where the body was found for about five minutes. Oh. Um, early in the morning. That's suspicious. Right. So, I mean, at the time that you see these cars, I mean, I, I, I'm not too familiar with the makes in the 40s, but do they look similar? Could you have said, oh, no, it was a sedan, but it was actually a coupe? Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so once the photographs and the evidence collection at the scene were completed, Jane Doe number 1, as she was then known, was taken to the city morgue for autopsy. Chief autopsy surgeon for Los Angeles County, Dr. Frederick D. Newbar, he proceeded with his examination that very afternoon. I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite long, but I'm going to quote from the report published in the Encyclopedia of Unsolved Crimes by Michael Newton. This autopsy is extremely graphic in nature, so please consider yourself warned. Maybe skip ahead in your listening five to seven minutes or so if you're queasy about that sort of thing. Okay, so Dr. Newbar wrote the following. The body is that of a female, about 15 to 20 years of age, measuring five feet, five inches in height, and weighing 115 pounds. There is a deep laceration on the face that extends laterally from the right corner of the mouth. The surrounding tissues are ecmotic and bluish in color. Um, so bru- he's talking about bruising. So um, that would indicate blood is pooling. There is a deep laceration extending laterally from the left corner of the mouth. The teeth are in a state of advanced decay. The two upper central incisors are loose and one lower incisor is loose. The rest of the teeth show cavities. Upon reflecting the scalp, there is ecmiosis on the right and upper frontal area. There are local areas of subarachnoid hemorrhage on the right side and small hemorrhagic areas in the corpus callosum. No fracture of the skull is visible. He noted small, smaller lacerations to her face, abrasions on her neck, but the pharynx and larynx are intact with no evidence of trauma to the hyoid bone, thyroid, or tricardic cartilages, or tracheal rings. There were other lacerations on her breasts and evidence of healed surgical scars, and her fingernails were short. Newbar said her internal organs were normal, apart from one of her lungs, the right one showing pleural adhesions. So he continues on to the torso. The trunk is completely severed by an incision, which is almost straight through the abdomen, severing the intestine at the duodenum and through the soft tissue of the abdomen, passing through the intravertebral disc between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. There is very little ecmiosis along the track of the incision. So then he moves on to kind of general skin. There's a square pattern of superficial lacerations in the skin of the right hip, The organs of the abdomen are entirely exposed. There are lacerations of the intestines and both kidneys. The uterus is small. No pregnancy is apparent. Tubes, ovaries, and cul-de-sac are intact. By cul-de-sac, he means the retrouterine pouch. So this is kind of where it gets a little... Mm. Um, Within the vagina, there is a loose piece of skin and fat with subcutaneous tissue attached. 
On this piece of loose skin, there are several crisscrossing lacerations. Smears for sperm were taken and found to be negative. There were other abrasions, too, and dilating of the anal canal with skin and pubic hair inserted there. Newbar wrote, in a regular opening in the skin on the anterior surface of the left thigh with tissue loss. So, um, I just like to note here that Elizabeth had a tattoo of a rose on her thigh and that the skin that was inserted into the body was the tissue lost the skin. The soles of her feet were stained brown. Finally, the stomach was filled with greenish brown or granular matter, mostly feces and other particles which could not be identified. That part is kind of a matter of debate within the true crime community. Um, does he mean in the digestive system? Or does he mean she ingested it? Mm -hmm. It's not really that clear. I don't... I, I think it's... I think he's talking about the natural course of mm -hmm. waste. But mm -hmm. some people think the other... I'm, I'm not going to comment on that. Mm -hmm. um, so her body had been washed by the killer and drained of blood, which left her skin very white. So that's why she just... It was so notable. She just... There was no blood left. Mm -hmm. It was determined she had been dead for about 10 hours before being discovered, which means her time of death was sometime during the evening of January 14th, 1947, or the early morning hours of January 15th, 1947. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot. I know. <laughs> I know that was a lot. That was graphic, horrible to imagine, but key points were made that would later be known as the key questions. And they were used by the police to include a suspect, to exclude a suspect, because the acts were so specific, they were so depraved. Much of these details were obviously not shared with the press or the public, and they held it back on purpose because they knew it was things that only the killer would know. Mm -hmm. So he wrote it in his report and later confirmed as much in the coroner's court that took place on January 22, 1947, that Elizabeth Short died from hemorrhage and shock following the concussion of her brain and lacerations of her face. So I kind of want to jump back to something that you mentioned um, so we can clarify for the readers a little bit. So you mentioned that there was that bruising and like blood pooling around her facial lacer lacerations meaning that she was still alive when those happened. Correct. However, around her torso, there were not those, like, hemorrhages. So that was post-mortem. That was after she was already deceased. Right. Julie and I went to Grey's Anatomy School of Medicine, but mm -hmm. um, let me confirm that the facial lacerations were contributing to her death. Those were done when she was alive. The bisection, nah, probably not. Mm -hmm. There was very little bruising around the inside of the incision, which means mm -hmm. there was no blood flowing. Her heart was not beating at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, think uh, small mercies. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the mutilations that I discussed, the, the tattoo, the crisscrossing, the bisection, after she died but there's indications she was restrained 
I said earlier, the presence of feces in her stomach, we don't know if that, like, it's not very clear. Like, I think if it was an autopsy done in 2022, it would say ingested. It would say digested. Like, so. Mm -hmm. Hard to say. Um, negative results for sperm. I mean, she was washed, so we can't really say if she was was or was not raped, but I'm going to assume. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was found naked. She was found posed in a highly suggestive manner. I think there's, it doesn't take an expert to conclude that there was a sexual nature to this crime. Um, there was a missing persons case in Florida in, uh, I think it was 2010, this young woman, Jennifer Kessie, um, and her family, they're still looking. But her father said that. He was like, you don't kidnap a beautiful woman to just look at her. Like, mm. we, we can just, we can assume there's a motive. Mm-hmm. So, identifying the body was expected to take some time. Um, they were really concerned that the mutilation to her face would make her unrecognizable to friends or family. Um, and that's a big problem. Los Angeles was and continues to be a super transient city. Lots of people coming and going. No rhyme or reason to it. So they definitely had their work cut out for them at the time. But they took her fingerprints and it didn't match any in their records um, in the sheriff's office. So it was decided that they would airmail the fingerprints to the FBI and see if they had a record of the victim. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for the LAPD at the time, there was a storm approaching the East Coast that was grounding a lot of planes, so this could slow them down before they could even really get started investigating the murder. There's another player in this investigation that I need to mention, and that is James Richardson, who is the city editor of the Los Angeles Examiner. He was responsible for or had a part in a number of developments as the case went on. So once he got his hands on the crime scene photos, he did something kind of clever. He got somebody from the art department in his newspaper to create a sketch of what she would have looked like in life. And they were going to use that for identification purposes. Um, And the Los Angeles Examiner, the edition that announced the murder that day, sold more copies than the issue announcing... uh, the attacks on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Wow. So, already got into a little bit the symbiotic relationship between the LAPD and the newspapers. So this comes into play now. When the police came looking for the sketch that we talked about, uh, Richardson's colleague and the assistant managing editor, Warden Woolard, he struck a deal with them. He said, if we get the scoop, we'll send the fingerprints to Washington by sound photo, which was kind of the early starter to uh, a fax machine. Mm-hmm. So the LAPD was like, yes, that sounds good. So the fingerprint comparison was going to take, it was going to be pretty laborious because they had to send them one by one, extend them up to eight and a half or eight by 10 size, and then manually just look at them, compare them. And, you know, they could employ, say, 20 people to do that, but how long is that going to take? Mm-hmm. Not very long, actually. Um, They got a match. Jane Doe number one was formally identified as Elizabeth Short, 
age 22, of Medford, Massachusetts, a city suburb five miles to the north of Boston. Elizabeth had briefly worked at the Post Exchange of Camp Cook in Lompoc, California. Do you know what a post exchange is? It's uh, the it's like the grocery store on a what is it like an army? Yeah, base? any any military base usually has mm-hmm. one. Kind of like a gr- grocery department store, mm-hmm. kind of multi use for for the um, people in the service. Um, so Camp Cook, being like a federal employer, she would have been fingerprinted when she started there. Mm-hmm. And she actually won Camp Cutie of the Week while working there, which I thought was cute. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also found a second fingerprint card. And this is from a 1943 arrest. Uh, she was underage, or she was underage in the presence of alcohol. Um, Elizabeth didn't really drink, so that's what I'm going to assume. She liked to be in the bars, but I don't think she really indulged that much. So. Mm-hmm. Just by being underage in the presence of alcohol, she was arrested mm-hmm. in Santa Barbara, California. So once they have this identification, then it's just a race against the clock. They want the scoop. They want to be the first one to report it. They want to sell the newspapers. So they discovered Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe Short, was still living in Medford. And it, Richardson does something so disgusting here. He has one of his reporters call Phoebe who right now doesn't know that her daughter has been murdered, and says, Elizabeth won a beauty contest. Oh my god. Yeah. They want her to talk all about... That's disgusting. Yes. Yeah. They want her... That poor mother. Oh yeah. She's, She's just in for it at this point, because they're really just looking... It's a fishing expedition. They just want... Details about her life that they can print in the paper. And when they run out of questions, that's when they tell her what happened. So they were the ones who told her? Yeah. How can you even ask all these questions, act as if she's alive, this woman has no idea that her daughter has been brutally murdered, and then all of a sudden at the end of your call just say, oh, and by the way, just kidding, XYZ, this all happened. Yep. If I was her mother, I'd be like, you're lying. That that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I... Man, yeah. nowadays, I don't even know what would happen if someone did that. Probably They'd sue probably someone. Probably get sued, Probably, yeah. like, I don't even know. Can you be arrested for that kind of thing? <laughs> I don't think so. No, you'd probably get fired. Yeah. Unless it was, um, what is it, when someone, like, impedes on a police investigation? Oh, obstruction? Yeah, 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 obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. So, they learned the following, that Elizabeth was the middle of five daughters born to Phoebe and Cleo Short. Her sisters were Virginia, Dorothea, Eleonora, and Muriel. And the Short family was a working-class one that had already endured their fair share of tragedy even before this happened. Uh, So Cleo Short, Elizabeth's father and Phoebe's husband, disappeared in 1930. His car had been found abandoned beside the Charlestown Bridge. 
and the Great Depression was just starting. So everyone assumed that he jumped in to commit suicide, and that left Phoebe alone to raise their daughters as a single mother. Really sad story. Yet, despite this, the short girls, they moved on with their lives. They went to school. They went to church. They went to work. Spent time with friends. Went to the movies. And Elizabeth, especially, who um, actually, her family called her Betty, but she kind of went by Elizabeth or Beth in California. She loved the movies. And in a heartbreaking cinematic third act twist, find out her father is actually alive. He's not dead. Faked his own death. Uh, then later he wrote to Phoebe and begging for forgiveness. I want to work it out. I want to get back together. And Phoebe says, no, buzz off. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah, she's like, we're better off without you. See ya. <laughs> so he uh, later relocates to Vallejo, California, uh, working odd jobs in the naval yards. So on top of this ongoing strife with her parents, Elizabeth also suffered from bronchitis and severe asthma attacks. And she actually underwent lung surgery at the age of 15. Hmm. And from then on, um, her mother would send her down to Florida for the winter. The mm -hmm. thought being it was warmer and, you know, less coughing. It's not as mm -hmm. cold. So, so do we think that's why the coroner found... Um, those things on her lung yes okay. yep. that yeah yeah because of her lung condition and the surgery when she was 15 ah yes yep um and i think this is kind of where her wanderlust started because she was out of massachusetts she was living a different life than expected of a woman of her time i mean generally mm -hmm. like kind of go to high school maybe and then get married Mm -hmm. College is kind of for wealthier people. Um, start a family, you know. So she's out and about traveling. Um, so she learns about her father and actually writes to him and asks if she can go to California and live with him. And uh, from her perspective, I mean, it's another warm environment and it's family. And she can kind of get to know him again. And um, sounds like the perfect arrangement. She can cook. She can clean, keep house while he's working. She gets place to crash. And everything's, you know, simpatico. Mm -hmm. Except not really. Uh, Cleo was an alcoholic. And Elizabeth was having what I'd call a delayed adolescence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> According to him, I mean, consider the source, um, yeah. she was sleeping all day, staying up all night, and this is around the time she had that arrest. Mm -hmm. um, so that arrangement didn't work out, and the police actually sent her back to Medford. The police sent her back? Yeah. Elizabeth didn't want to upset her mother, so they just said, hey, here's some money for the bus. We won't do anything. Go home. So. Yeah. <laughs> so she went home, but not for long because it was getting to be winter. So she went down to Florida again. And that's where she met one of the people that would have a lasting impact on her short life. She met Major Matt Gordon, who was an Air Force officer and a flying tiger. 
He was training for deployment in the Pacific uh, during World War II. And what happened between them is kind of a, it's a matter of debate. Um, she had letters that were unsent, like in her trunk, that implied they were engaged or she thought they were engaged. Um, Matt's mother didn't think so, but she was in Colorado and mm-hmm. is he the type of man to tell his mother everything? We, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and I guess we'll never know. Uh, because he was killed in a plane crash over India on August 10th, 1945. Oh. Yeah. And from many accounts, she was never the same after that. hmm So, Matt's death seemed to have a significant impact on Elizabeth. Uh, she dated around afterwards. Nothing too serious other than uh, Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Gordon Fickling, who is another another man in uniform. She, she did like the men in the uniform. Um, and he was noted to be possessive and jealous whenever Elizabeth like even spoke to another man. He was felt some type of way about it. So that didn't really last long. Uh, fizzled out, but they kept in touch, and sometimes she'd write to him if she needed some money, and if he had it, he'd send it to her. Um, and after that, she was kind of drifting. Uh, San Diego, Los Angeles, Long Beach, with no fixed address or long-term employment. She kind of jumped around. And Long Beach is actually where the uh, Black Dahlia nickname started. It actually was before she uh, was murdered because um, The Blue Dahlia was a movie that came out in 1946 with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake, I think, and Elizabeth wore black, and it was a local drugstore slash like soda counter thing, like drugstores at the time served multiple purposes it wasn't just a pharmacy Mm -hmm. and um she was in there a lot and they gave her that nickname interesting i at first i was thinking when you were describing the autopsy how she had that rose on her thigh and i thought maybe people confused it for you know a dahlia flower um yeah i'm not sure where i read it i think it was I'll get to them later, but um, the French family that she stays with in San Diego, I think it was them. They said that she liked to sit so you could see it. Like, she'd, like, cross her legs so you could see it. Yeah. So it'd be out, and I'm like, oh, little, like, cheeky. Yeah. Um, so after the body was discovered, they tracked down, reporters able to track down her luggage now she had kind of a big steamer trunk that she sent ahead um while she was commuting to california because remember at the time you didn't go by plane you went by train so she would have to have changed probably i think it was indianapolis or chicago like there was multiple stops so she sent it ahead Mm -hmm. and then obviously she was not around to collect it so it went somewhere else and then she had checked two suitcases that she could carry and a hat box at a Greyhound bus station in Los Angeles on January 9th, which is the last day the police could confirm she was seen alive. That's like the last official accepted day, January mm-hmm. 9th. So they got they got a hold of all of them. It was another police reporter's deal 
break kind of mm-hmm. session that, oh, you give me this, you give me that. So they went through the luggage. Uh, they found clothes and letters, telegrams, uh, photographs of her, her family, her with men, like, um, and photo albums. And a lot of the information about her love life and the interviews police later conducted came from reading the letters that she had in her belongings. That and must be a... so spooky. Oh, like yeah. reading letters from her. Yeah, especially because some of them, like I said, weren't sent. So yeah, that's really interesting. Like, was she planning to send these? Was she just using it as like a journal? You know, just writing them and never sending them. Right. Yeah. Um. So it's like, what? What was the intention? Did you? Were you going to post them? Tomorrow, were you going to post them next week mm-hmm. when, you, when you get a job again and you have, you know, the money to do that? I, I don't know. Um, so she wrote with her family a lot, but she never let on that she was struggling, which I think a lot of people can relate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, she didn't want her mother to worry about her. Uh, so a lot of the things that went on in Los Angeles and San Diego uh, her mother didn't even know about. She was kind of, she learned all that after from the police and reporters, which that's sad. Mm-hmm. And this behavior that set the pattern for the last few months of her life. Uh, she moved from city to city, apartment to apartment, job to job, man to man, making it very difficult for the investigators to establish the identity of the person or persons who murdered her until he called. Is this the city editor? Yes. What is your name, please? Richardson. Well, Mr. Richardson, I must congratulate you on what the examiner has done in the Black Dahlia case. Thank you. You seem to have run out of material. That's right. Maybe I could be of some assistance. We need it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you some of the things she had with her when she, say, disappeared. What kind of things? Oh, say her address book and her birth certificate and a few other things she had in her handbag. When will I get them? Oh, within the next day or so. See how far you can get with them. And now I must say goodbye. You may be trying to trace this call. Wait a minute. Super unsettling moments for us, let alone Richardson. Uh, for all my qualms about his methods, uh, I probably would have peed my pants if I was in his position. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
just the spookiest of spooky. Yeah, I, um, because, like, it's not coming, it's not a recorded line, it's his recollections, he, mm -hmm. that happened, and he, you know, when they're speaking of tracing the call, he is trying to do that, he's writing notes to his switchboard girls, trying to, he actually wrote trace this call, and was throwing the paper at them to try to get, extend like they do in like hostage situations, try to extend the call as much mm -hmm. as they can. And this person knew exactly what he was doing and did not let him do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. His responses, Richardson's responses are very, you know, straight to the point, but also almost as if he's trying to think, what can I say next to get this guy to keep talking? Like, what can I ask him or what, what can I say that will prompt him to say something longer? Right. Whereas this killer knew exactly what he was going to say and knew he had a limited amount of time mm -hmm. to do it. But he was a man of his word because a suspicious parcel was intercepted by the USPS, the postal inspectors. It was addressed to a Los Angeles examiner and other area newspapers, and it had put, been posted from a downtown mailbox, so in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. Mm -hmm. the note accompanying the parcel it was in like ransom note style so it was letters cut from newspaper headlines classic yep and it spelled out here is dahlia's belongings letter to follow so inside the parcel it was for birth certificate it was for social security card uh, various photos business cards a claim check for the luggage that she put at the Greyhound bus station, and an address book embossed with the name Mark Hansen. Hmm. And one thing to note about the parcel is everything was damp, and it smelled like gas. Why? Because he dumped everything in gasoline to get rid of evidence and destroy his fingerprints. Um... But wow. they actually, so this guy, he's got some wits about him. Right. That's um, clever. I don't know that I've ever heard of that before. Yeah, I would say, I guess in true crime speak, the profiling would be an organized person. Mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of, in terms of evidence collection, fingerprints is, uh, was a big thing that was mm -hmm. a, probably the significant part of crime scenes mm -hmm. we're still decades away at this time from hair analysis i mean they could right. they could figure out a hair like if it was animal or human they couldn't match it to somebody like they mm -hmm. could visually say oh this is a black hair but it you know right and absolutely no dna analysis of any sort back then right. so really you know the they're really working with glue and tape here mm-hmm uh, they actually were able to retrieve a one partial fingerprint from the outside, but it could have been the killer. It could have been one of the postal agents mm -hmm. or inspectors, excuse me. They sent it to the FBI, but nothing. I mean, it, it could exclude a suspect, I guess, if they fingerprint them, but like, imagine the crimes... <laughs> at that time that could have been solved with our technology now 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so on the same day that they get this parcel, a woman's handbag and a black suede shoe were seen sitting on top of a garbage can in an alley two miles away from where Elizabeth's body was discovered. Uh, fortunately, they were able to get a hold of these before they were collected by the garbage man. But they were also treated with gasoline, so there was really mm. nothing meaningful to be analyzed from this. It's interesting, though, that he sent certain things to the newspaper, but he didn't send those items. I guess because they, you know, they weren't really identifiable. They were just, you know, pieces of, like, a, a purse and a shoe. Whereas the other things that he sent were, you know, paper items. Um, well, but it is it's funny you say that, though, because a person of interest actually is able to confirm that those belong to her. So really? they think he made a mistake. Oh, okay. Because it was, it, they think he was trying to dispose of those. Mm-hmm. But they got a hold of it. Yeah. So uh, I'll talk about the person of interest in part two, but they are able to confirm that the shoe and the handbag belong to her. Wow. So the letter to follow that the killer promised to send was addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner, and this one was actually handwritten. It wasn't ransom note style. And it said, here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. And it was signed, the Black Dahlia Avenger. So this message, like I said, it, it was handwritten. And they were able to figure out that it was with a ballpoint pen. And this was considered notable at the time because ballpoint pens were pricey. Um, officers used them during the war. But they were only available to the general public they only made them available in December 1945, and at the time, that was um, at the cost of $12.50, and I... It's expensive. Uh, yeah, I, I ran that That's even through... expensive nowadays. <laughs> I'm not paying 12 bucks for a pen. <laughs> well, uh, you'll this will blow your mind, because I ran it through uh, an inflation calculator, and today that pen would cost you 200 bucks. Oh my god, I don't doubt it. I got some good old Bic pens over here. Yeah, right. Like, who cares? So just... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just the, the fanciness of it because it was like, oh, only officers used this yeah. during the war. That's like the kind of thing that people, like, gift to others with their name engraved on it when, like, you know, they graduate from law school or, like, medical school or some big achievement. They're like, hey, now you're big enough to have a fancy pen. Right, like a Mont Blanc pen or something like, mm -hmm. oh, da-da-da, mm -hmm. passing of the torch. Here's a fancy yeah. pen that sticks yeah. up, like, at an, excuse me, at an angle um, on your desk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, it just sit, it stands there and mocks at all the people who can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So, January 29th comes, January 29th goes, nobody comes forward to the LAPD or the newspapers. The next day, January 30th, another note comes, and this one, it went backwards to the, the ransom note style with the newspaper clippings, and it said, have changed my mind. 
He would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. Justified in what way? Like, yeah. <laughs> Sir, no. No, it was not. Yeah. Uh, so this was the first of several that were sent to the newspapers, purportedly by the killer. Um, at least the ones I've read to you, they, they think was by the same person, but I think the nature of the crime brought a lot of kooks, a lot of crackpots, mm -hmm. a lot of fakers out. Um, not, nothing's really changed <laughs> in 2022. I yeah. feel like there's always people that make those type of reports. Mm -hmm. um, Which, like, get a life. Yeah. Especially, think of the kind of person, think of the profile of a person that would give themselves the name Black Dahlia Adventure. Yeah, it's like very Marvel world. Like, the Avengers. Yeah. Black Dahlia Avenger. Which, Dude, you sound like a loser. <laughs> it's not even a cool name. I also, I'm like, to me, Avenger means... You would be the person avenging like, her Like death. a good guy. Yeah. yeah. Like if yeah. you did it, you're not the Black Dahlia Avenger. You're the Black Dahlia Murderer. Right. Yeah. So, um, I'm not sure if the contents of every letter have been made public, but another one of these said, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. Okay, but then, like, how do you respond to that? If you're like, all right, we'll give you 10 years, come forward. You know, like, he's not going to come forward. Well, like, imagine committing such heinous acts, don't don't SVU heinous acts, and yeah. um, thinking that 10 years is going to do it. Like, Right, what? yeah. I love that you just said that. Especially <laughs> heinous. <laughs> bum, bum. So... That concludes episode one of three about the murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. We will have two other parts, um, so definitely stay tuned. Thank you for listening, and we will be dropping that part two of the Black Dahlia case tomorrow. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, and follow us on Instagram at cabin13podcast. Remember, safety first. Be sure to extinguish those campfires before turning in, and we'll see you next time.